Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Comic Source. I'm your host, Jace. Uh, you know, legendary, that word gets thrown around a lot, but I do have a legendary creator that's joining me once again. He's been on the show before. My pleasure to welcome Dan Jurgens back. Dan, thanks for taking the time. Good to be here, Jace. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. It's always great. Uh, you know, obviously, Superman being my favorite character, you're one of my favorite creators. But we're here today to talk about kind of the other side of DC Comics, Batman. Uh, mm -hmm. You have your Black Label debut with a Batman story uh, called Batman First Night. So uh, let me throw it over to you. Give us the elevator pitch. Let our listeners kind of know what this project is about. The elevator pitch. Uh, so very quickly, Batman was um, first debuted all the way back in 1939. And if you go back and look at those stories, I've always been fascinated by them because it's a very different kind of Batman. There is no Batcave. There is no real Batmobile. He's just a guy out there doing his thing. Um, even at that point, we don't know that much about him. And if you read the balloons, there's even sort of a sense of self-doubt in there a, a little bit. So I just find that fascinating. And I also find those times to be fascinating. America is on the heels of the Great Depression. It's kind of uh, still in full force, but eventually going to end soon. And on the precipice of World War II. So it's a very fascinating time, a lot of stuff going on then. And I think Batman fits very well in that time. So it's uh, great to be able to do this project where we get him right into it. Yeah, everybody, uh, if you're watching us uh, or listening along on uh, the podcast, we've had Mike Perkins, the artist, join as well. So Yes, Mike, uh, so, sorry about that. I got stuck in traffic. I had to pick my daughter up. Uh, no yeah. worries. Life, life happens. Life happens. So Dan was just giving <laughs> us the elevator pitch uh, about Batman First Night. Now, Batman, you know, known worldwide, we're the most known uh, DC characters. Uh, how did you get involved with the project? Like you hear, hear about doing this, heard Dan's pitch. Hey, let's go back to the earliest days. Uh, was that something that really interested you got you excited oh yeah yeah totally i mean that was uh i don't know if dan has gone over this but he uh he was working on generations and i did a few pages in there where there was uh, a batman 1939 and that was the point where dan said let's get together and do something more uh from this and of course you know i mean any any project with batman is just fantastic but to actually go back and do that 1939 atmosphere and shadow and you know utilize that great original costume and i mean i was i was all in you know um it took us a while uh to get mm -hmm. it through but yeah 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 i was i was definitely up for it yeah well i've had a chance to re read and look at the art for the first issue it's fantastic and we'll, we'll talk a little about about the style art deco and that kind of thing uh okay, but i want to go back you. to something that you said dan um about those early days there's no alfred there's no Batcave. Um, and, you know, kind of of its time right before World War II, coming out of the Great Depression and what have you. But I think there are some themes that are relevant uh, today in terms of, you know, inclusivity and and kind of this divisiveness that's that's going on. Uh, was that something that you kind of wanted to explore uh, specifically or is it just happened to be kind of coincidental? Uh, no, from the very start, the idea was to do this project and have it, you know, um, identify some of the parallels to our world today. What has happened that we could not have foreseen is once we got started on it, events that are out there in the world today would make it, I think, even more relevant. And that has given us something that um, I think we can respond to. 
But, you know, the story was very much in place. The tone of the book was very much in place. The kind of things we were going to cite as obvious problems in 1939 were all in place. And it's been very odd for us, I think, to see events in the world sort of take us back to some of that in a lot of ways, because you're right. Some of what we're talking about as having happened in 1939 certainly appeals uh, or applies rather to 2024. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. I read it. I'm like, man, haven't we learned yet? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 frustrating at times. Uh, but getting back to the the, the look, the feel, the tone, uh, as Dan mentioned, uh, Mike, uh, I mentioned Art Deco, which was kind of a, a movement, uh, 20s, early 30s in uh, France. And by the 30s and 40s, it had come over here. We see it right from the title page, this Art Deco influence. So was that something, uh, that style, you know, was that something you were already familiar with or was it something you did, went and did a little bit of research on? No, no, I was very familiar with the Art Deco style. Um, I probably haven't put as much in as we were originally intending, I think, um, because I think we originally said, oh, let's go full on with the Art Deco and everything. But um, it just... I don't know, the script and the atmosphere tended to lean itself more towards a more realistic Gotham, you know, a kind of New York, Chicago amalgam. Um, and, and I kind of see the, the pure Art Deco as being Metropolis in a way. Right. Um, you know, these golden spires and this this idealized version, whereas Gotham is it's falling apart. You know, it's... Uh, even though it's it's a fairly new city at that point, um, it's still got those dark corners, which a lot of the times Art Deco doesn't necessarily lend itself to that. It's it's very clean, mm-hmm. um, but I mean a lot of a lot of New York and Chicago was 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 built in those times, you know. So you you have got that influence there, um, and so I think that's that's more reflective on those kind of things and and i think i think if you if you just put a little bit in there it helps to solidify that atmosphere um rather than overpowering it too much right well uh, if listeners if you're not familiar with art deco what we're talking about like uh, very much the style of architecture and kind of design lettering what have you in the very, very beloved batman the animated series which is right. also very very clean uh, but you're balancing that, Dan, against, uh, as we said, the kind of the real world events that happened in the 30s, you know, coming out of the Great Depression. There's still a lot of homeless people. There's still a lot of poverty. Uh, and it's Batman. So it's street level and it's it's very visceral. So in, in terms of getting that balance, I think Mike's done a great job visually. Uh, yeah, if, I could, if I could just jump in real quick, yeah. you know, you, you have the first cover on screen. So certainly the logo features that sense of art deco to it. Yeah. Uh, but then the images inside Batman's cape, and this is what I communicated to Mike right from the start, uh, because not everybody necessarily wants to draw this, but I had said um, hats, baggy suits, and Tommy guns, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, that's, you know, Mike excels at that so much and has worked so hard to capture that flavor here that it really fits right in. And, and I think there are a couple of times we see some polish, most notably with Bruce Wayne, because... He's unaffected by the Depression. But the reality of that time is, if you look back at at kind of what Art Deco was, it was this, at the time, sort of this fanciful vision of what the future might be like, right? But the reality is, yes, Gotham is is a city of grime and dirt and corruption. 
Yeah. And again, the, the balance uh, is struck very well because uh, we do get the sense that Bruce is kind of, you know, learning the ropes. The background is so visceral and dirty, but you're right about, you know, Bruce being the, the other side of that. Cause when he does first show up on the page with his, you know, fancy sports car, it's bright, it's clean. It's not kind of touched by the reality. So I'm sure that was purposeful as well in the script. Oh yeah. yeah. Cause then you got those guys in the, the dialogue in that scene who are basically saying, who's the guy in the clean suit? You know, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, Dan, we've talked many times about Superman. We mentioned it at the top uh, and, you know, had great conversations about kind of the the way you relate to him, how he's how he's not boring, how you can threaten him, you know, by threatening the people he loves or the things he care about or his values. What's your in with Batman? Where where do you feel like uh, he speaks to you, especially going back to his earliest roots here? Well, what a great question. And I and I think it is because um, we are seeing someone who is in that stage of just starting to really put this together. And, and I think this notion of uh, a Batman who certainly has this level of self-doubt. And, and I think um, almost for him, there's a certain crisis of faith that is involved in this story in that, can I do this? Can anyone do this? Uh, can anyone really set out to change kind of what's happening in a city like Gotham City, and especially when in terms of allies, um, you know, he has Commissioner Gordon. They have not yet met at the time of this story, but you also have a very corrupt police force. So who can really make that change? And while Bruce can have that desire, I think it's only natural for anyone to really question whether or not, first, it's something that can be done, and second, if they're the ones who can do it. And I think... Um, Dealing with a less capable Batman is what I like about this, that, you know, he's not the Batman who is building rocket ships that can take him to, you know, other solar systems or whatever. This is a Batman who's really on his own um, operating through wits and guile. Yeah, uh, we talk about the power creep of Batman. Everybody's trying to one up each other and, and we get it. There's been decades of stories. So you're right. This is a very uh, grounded Batman. I talked about how visceral the art is. Uh, black label book, so uh, a little bit of a different format, a little bit uh, bigger on, on the page. Does that make any difference in your uh, process, Mike? Uh, a little more freedom, uh, be able to let things breathe a little more. There's, it's a bit of both. Um, I've related this story before that when when I first started out, and I've got those they're, they're bigger pages to draw on. Mm -hmm. They're kind of A2 pages, um, and I was talking to. Charlie Adlard, who lives down the road from me, and we were, we were talking about the different approach. And he said, oh, that's great. You can just slap slap it on. And I was like, I'm putting more detail on, man. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> and, Your uh, styles are a bit different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was... Uh, it, I, I, I'm not, I don't think there was a learning process, but it's um, it was more of a brain thing because I'm very much... Um, I usually do a page per day. Mm -hmm. And doing it at this size, it's at least every two days or a day and a half. And um, but still, my brain is like, it should have been done. It should have been done this day. Right. So that was a, <laughs> that was an entirely different process for me. As, as far as the artwork goes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it opens it up. It it allows you to put those extra beats in. You know, going for a European format, it's it's not the problem to have those 10 panels per page and still have the the space around it. Um, 
and there, you know, it's a squarer format as well. So um, I don't, I don't think there's that much. I mean, the thing is with the script as well. It's, it's Dan's obviously very visual in his writing and his drawing, and as an artist, he sees that visual aspect of it. So he's very open at, at leaving it open for me to be able to tell those beats of the story. Um, and you know, you, you've got you've got the basis of the of what's happening on that page, but then it's up to me to manipulate in a way uh, to put those storytelling beats on. And the and the size of that paper, it 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 opens that up. It opens it up to be able to tell those those little moments that you might yeah. not necessarily have the room for. So yeah, and just to um, touch a little bit on what Mike is referring to. So there have been more than a few instances throughout this project where, you know, because we're not working full script, it, it's a little bit more of a Marvel method approach. And um, because I always want anyone I work with, if they're drawing and I'm writing to have that room to kind of flesh things out and add that, whether it's a sense of power or drama or story beat, that less things un, you know flow in a more natural way. And there have been a lot of pages and scenes where say I might've called for five pens. And what Mike will do is stretch it to seven or eight even, which slows down the eye as it goes across the page. And, and especially in a page of dialogue or tension can slow it down so the reader feels it more um, in sort of that secondary level. And it's working out fabulously. Well, Dan, you're smart enough to know you're not going to tell Mike Spicer uh, how to draw, or Mike Perkins, sorry, uh, how to draw. Uh, or Mike Spicer how to draw. Oh, Mike Spicer as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. a fantastic color artist, uh, which who I know, Mike, you work with uh, a lot. Uh, yeah. But I did also want to ask uh, you kind of that same question, Dan. Freedom in the art for Mike, uh, you know, black label, not necessarily a slave to continuity, even though we're going back to the early days. So, you know, there's a lot of freedom there uh, as well. But, you know, not necessarily in canon, but nothing in the first issue was there that couldn't be in canon, uh, so to speak. But it, what what is the freedom of, of Black Label for you as a writer? Well, yeah, and I, I think you touched on it there, Jace, which is the, the way I did this is, so if we look at Batman first appearing in Detective 27, and I don't think Robin comes along to say 33, um, I wanted to do something that really takes place in the first several weeks of Bruce trying to be Batman. So to me, it was important to have a story that would feel like it could have appeared then, that would fit in with the way Batman was portrayed and perceived back at that time, while also not ne necessarily contradicting anything. So if we go back to those times very early on, um, Bruce refers to Julie Madison as his fiance, for example. Mm -hmm. So we have Julie Madison in the book. How is that relationship coming together? What is that? And, and I think um, that's part of the fun here, that it takes what was originally there. And I think we go, you know, those were short, short stories. They were like eight pages long. So what we can do is take those elements, not contradict them. We can kind of build on them and go a little deeper. And I think that's what Mike and I have been trying to do here is, is really take the guts of what was there and go deeper with it to see what was there. And I think that's how you get to see what made Batman so interesting and different at that time. 
Yeah, and we did. Yeah, and you guys do a fantastic job. It was great to see all those elements because you're right, Dan. Those pages are so they're so short. And Golden Age was a different time. You know, there wasn't a lot of characterization and, and evolution of character and what have you. But we did. I, I did inadvertently mention Mike Spicer. Uh, you know, longtime uh, color artist who who works with you a lot um, on Mike Perkins' art. Uh, so is that just like riding a bike? Mike, when the two of you get together, uh, and how much back and forth was there to kind of establish the tone that we were talking about that you wanted to give? Yeah, we, it was actually it was actually very interesting because, <clears throat> you know, I I tend to see the pages in black and white anyway. So when I'm coloring, I will see it how I would color it, which is mm -hmm. browns, blues, especially something like this. Um, and so we originally, I think we we got into ten pages or something, right, Dan? Mm -hmm. um, I think we got 10 pages in of doing sepia tones and blue tones and things like this. And I think it was Dan who came, came and said, we, we, we're kind of missing the point that the 30s were vibrant. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, you had this depression and everything, but the 30s were vibrant and it's, it, it was starting to feel like the whole thing was a flashback rather than being relevant to today in a way. Um, and so at that point, I just stepped back and, and, you know, I've got enough trust in Mike for him to do what he does and, and do it well, you know. So um, that was a point where we just said, OK, Mike, you do what you do, you know. Yeah. And, um, and still and, and capture the flavor. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, totally. and, and take us where we wanted to go, um, but still have a little bit of sparkle on the page where necessary where all of a sudden when when the action gets bigger here's a a violet red sort of background element or something like that just to make it pop and energize it a bit more and so the the key is it still feels very much like the time and that's what we wanted to identify that's what was so important yeah because so we, we, we were there's those there's those scenes where um they're kind of all setup scenes where uh, Bruce and Commissioner Gordon are, are going through Gotham in the car, and uh, I think Dan was just like, "No, we have to, we have to portray that New York is this vibrant place, you know, um, even though it's going through this depression. Uh, there, there was this vibrancy there, all, all the all the cinema hoardings and everything, you know. So, yeah, they played a big role in that." When you saw those recolored pages, did you guys know right away? Okay, yeah, this is the way we should go. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, we all, and and that includes editorial as well. I think we all said, okay, yeah, now we're finding our voice. And really, whenever you start a new project, writers talk about trying to find their voice, which is one hundred percent true. But it, it's true of the artists as well. Uh, and I know whenever I'm drawing anything, it always takes me, you know, twenty twenty five pages before I start to sense that. Uh, get that sense of comfort and find that voice myself. So that's yeah, yeah, same, yeah, same with the colorist and and with, same with Simon doing the lettering. You know, it took us a while to find that correct, correct point where we were all going. Oh yeah, this is the one. Yep. Well, fantastic! I couldn't be more excited, everybody. It's three issues. The first issue is out. It'll be in comic shops March uh, March fifth. Now's the time to tell your retailer you want it. Uh, have them set aside a copy, pull this or, or what have you. Uh, as we're winding down here, uh, Dan, anything else you want our listeners to know? No, I just um, just to emphasize really what we talked about, that uh, this is a, very much a developmental story for Batman in that time in which he was created. And I think, you know, the way it was done then, there's something that I think lends itself 
to that legend of who Batman is, that he fits that time very, very well. And so even um, in terms of what you cited in issue one, there's going to be more of that in issues two and three to that really it's the sense of an individual coming together uh, to be this person that he thinks he can be, despite this level of self-doubt and questioning is, is it even a mission statement that's possible to achieve? Yeah, very relatable, right? Trying trying to, you know, fulfill who you think you can be. Uh, yeah. What about you, Mike? Anything for our listeners you'd like them to know? Uh, no, I just I just think, uh, you know, you always want this to be the work of your career when you're at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and I think that this is this is the case here. Um, so yeah, I I just I, I I mean I've truly enjoyed it, and I'm hoping that everybody will just look at it, read it, and and, and I'm I'm confident that they will totally enjoy it. Yeah, I think they'll yeah. respond a hundred percent. So, uh, gentlemen, again, uh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it, and uh, you know, best of luck on the on the project. Hope it's well received. Thank you. Thank you, Jace. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.